I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got a double feature. Later on, we'll be hearing from returning guest, Dr. Poya Alamigam, author of Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings, about the continued talks in Vienna for a new Iran deal and the attempts by various forces to scuttle those efforts. But first up, a very special guest, longtime Palestinian-American human rights activist and attorney, Huweda Araf, one of the co-founders of the International Solidarity Movement, joins us to discuss why she is running for Congress in Michigan's 10th District. I had the honor and pleasure of meeting Huweda last month during a visit to D.C. and found her to be an engaging speaker, concerned about human rights, campaign finance reform, and social justice. In this conversation, we'll discuss a number of topics, including the powerful story of Huweda's political awakening. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Huweda Araf. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very grateful to be spending some time with. Uh, Huweda Araf, a Palestinian-American activist, uh, human rights advocate and attorney, uh, co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement, and now running for Congress. 
uh, in Michigan's 10th congressional district. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So, Hueda, for my listeners, maybe you could talk about um, your political awakening and uh, growing up, what your first experience is thinking about a lot of issues were, because uh, I know you were at the D.C. conference recently, the uh, Transcending the Israel Lobby uh, at Home and Abroad conference, and I found your story to be uh, very powerful. It was a very powerful testimony. So maybe you could tell my listeners about that story. Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll start by saying I am the daughter of working class immigrants here in the Metro Detroit area, Michigan. My parents came to this country. My mom was nine months pregnant with me, and now I'm the oldest of five children. And I'm the mom of two young kids myself. So I I feel very much that I know the daily challenges facing working people. And I want to fight to improve those in our policies, policies to uplift working people and, and, and the poor in this country. When I was young, I saw how hard my parents worked to make a life for us. And even thinking back to why they left everything they knew back in Palestine to come to this new country. It's why most immigrants do looking for a better life for their family and for their children. In my case, you know, in Palestine, my father is from a village that where the Palestinians, even though they're citizens of the country of Israel, they don't have equal rights at all, simply because they are not Jewish. And in my mom's town of Beit Zahor, it's under military occupation. So they don't even have basic rights. They're subject to Israeli military law. And so many years later, the situation is the same and, and even worse today. My parents wanted to give us freedom. They wanted to give us opportunity. And I'm so grateful that we had that. My father found a union job working with General Motors. And even though he worked day and night, trying never to take a day off, uh, coming home dripping in sweat, he was able to raise our family of seven on that, that job that gave him the chance to have a dignified job, a job that pays a living wage. And I don't see that today. Families are working harder than ever, parents, and and can't make ends meet. So that's part of why I'm running for Congress. It's a really big push, but also, and to get more directly to your question, my political awakening uh, growing up, I'll take it all the way back to when I was five years old. When we were young, my parents used to take us back to Palestine in order to maintain a connection with our extended family, my grandfather, my aunts, uncles, cousins there. And I remember one specific incident. Whenever we'd go back, I was so proud to be an American. I thought that was the coolest thing and I flaunted it. And one day we were with my aunt in my mom's town of Beth Sahur and we were getting ready to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, so it's a holy place in Jerusalem. Most Christians believe that that's the site where Jesus was crucified. And I was really ecstatic, and I wanted my aunt and my cousin to go with us, but they couldn't. And I didn't really understand Israeli restrictions on Palestinian movement then, and I was insisting. And then my aunt said to me that this is your America that's doing this to us. This is your President Reagan that is supporting Israel doing this to us. And I was 
stunned as like a, a five-year-old girl who was just so proud of being an American. And now America's policies are not letting my cousin and my aunt come to Jerusalem with us. So I remember just standing there with tears in my eyes, not believing. And then as I grew older, I, I came to realize, unfortunately, that all of the beautiful things that America says it stands for, and that I know Americans really believe in or want to believe in, that we are a, a, a purveyor of democracy, a beacon of light, and a defender of and promoter of human rights uh, and freedom around the world. You know, that's great, but that's not always what our policies uh, support overseas. And even then right here at home with some of the things that I'm talking about, and I, I want to be a voice for that, really making this country live up to what we say we believe in with our policies, whether overseas or right here at home. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think that's an important point, uh, because to me, if we're truly patriotic and we truly believe in the ideals that we as a country uh, claim to support these ideas of democracy and, and justice uh, and human rights, uh, the most patriotic thing we can do in, in so many ways is to stand up for those things and to be critical when we need to be of policies that aren't showing uh, those ideals to be at the center of America. Exactly. I, I believe so. When you you know, when you are, are patriotic, when you love your country, you want your country to be the best that it can be. And then so when it's not, you have to be honest about it and you have to work to make it so. That is absolutely not being anti-American or not patriotic, quite the opposite. It is taking action to make your country all it can be. If you could, could you tell my listeners a, a little bit about your life in activism and how you eventually uh, decided to run for Congress. Sure. Wow. <laughs> that could be very long, but let me try to sum it up. Uh, shortly after graduating from college, I, I had the knowledge that I had the opportunity that so many people don't have, you know, to have freedom, uh, to go to a, a good university. Uh, how many people in the United States and around the world don't get that. And so I was really looking for ways that I could give back. And I, a few months after graduating, I was offered a job to move to Jerusalem to work uh, on Israeli and Palestinian issues. It was for a US-based organization. And I accepted, and I went over in the year 2000 to, to work in Jerusalem where I was just witness to some horrific uh, human rights abuses, most of what is not reported on in the mainstream media, most of which I was 100% sure the most Americans didn't know about from the Israeli policies of taking children from their beds in the middle of the night and throwing them in Israeli military prisons to demolishing family homes and things that, you know, this doesn't make the US news, even though American taxpayers are paying for it. Then Palestinians really rose up and uh, started protesting against everything that is uh, oppressive Israeli policy that Israel was perpetrating against Palestinians while telling the world that we're in a peace process, what's called the Oslo peace process. Um, and Israel responded to people, to unarmed men, women, and children, and I was with them marching for, for freedom and an end to these human rights abuses. And the Israeli military 
full force just attacked protesters. So within a month of these unarmed protests, 127 people had been shot dead. And Israel was not held accountable for any Palestinian death because there's nobody to hold them accountable. And the mainstream media was, for the most part, blaming Palestinians. Like, why did Palestinians start these what they called riots? Uh, and then, and so whitewashing or even justifying Israel's very brutal uh, military response. I was looking for what I could do to help change the dynamic because violence was spiraling. And I ended up co-founding what's called the International Solidarity Movement. It was an idea to try to really get global civil society involved in, in supporting the Palestinian freedom struggle. We called people from all over the world to come stand uh, with Palestinians struggling for their freedom in a way to try to pr provide some protective presence, uh, presence of internationals that could help report on what's happening uh, and hope to people that are really feeling abandoned. And I, I, we wanted to change the way the mainstream media was reporting because all we hear is how Palestinians are terrorists and they can't live, they can't accept Israel and they wanna push the Jews into the sea and all of these things. We have to change that. And one of the ways we could do that is by people from all over the world would come and send a message that they're, they are standing with Palestinians, not because they're against Jews and not because they're against Israel. In fact, many people that came to join us were Jewish, Jewish Americans, Jews from Europe, uh, even Jewish Israelis. And just sending a message that we're on the side of freedom versus occupation, apartheid and oppression. And that was the international solidarity movement. I did that and organized that for years. We've had since its founding well over 10,000 people from more, probably 40 countries around the world come uh, to the occupied Palestinian territories and stand with uh, Palestinians in this way, then go back to their own home countries and, and spread the word and advocate for a change in their own government policies that are supporting or, you know, best case scenario, not doing anything to stop Israel's uh, aggression, colonization, and apartheid. So where from that to running for Congress, I am now back in the county, the district that I was raised. I moved back in, uh, in 2014 to, uh, and, and began working at a civil rights law firm in downtown Detroit, fought, you know, fighting for a lot of rights that are denied to American uh, citizens or government yeah, by government repression in different ways. Some of the cases we worked on involved like wrongful conviction, police brutality, the Flint water poisoning. S still, and within the same context of fighting for people's rights, like many parents, I had to leave the workplace with the onset of COVID. And when things began opening up again, and I was thinking of going back to work, my kids were back in school just looking at where we were as a country, sure, I could go back to the law office and to the courtroom and fight for people's, my clients' civil rights, and we definitely need civil rights and human rights lawyers to continue to do that. But the question to myself was, could I do more? We have to fight in the streets, in the courtroom, and we have to fight to elect people to make better laws. What I was seeing is that laws that are being legislated are rolling our civil rights back, not expanding them. And looking at my own representative, uh, she has voted against 
every single piece of legislation since she's been in office, every single piece of legislation that could help and uplift working families while spewing divisive rhetoric. So the hyperpolarization, the laws being rolled back on our civil rights, I decided that I was going to run for Congress. I was going to, to challenge her and take my message of centering people, centering human rights, centering civil rights in all of our policymaking uh, and hope that that would be a message that would resonate with people and take me to Washington to be a representative of people that need their government to do better for them. So I, I wanna get into this. So right now in your district, I believe the incumbent is uh, Lisa McClan, a uh, Republican, and she won by a, a pretty decent margin in uh, the last election. Uh, what do you say to naysayers? Because I know you've talked about this before, uh, that a lot of Democrats or the party itself uh, doesn't feel like uh, they, they should put that much money into the thumb region of Michigan. Uh, they, they feel like they can't win. What do you say to those sort of naysayers? And I, I think you uh, are fighting the good fight. I just want to point that out. Well, thank you for that. So this will be a two-part um, answer because the district lines have changed since I announced my run for Congress. Uh, so yes, I knew that taking on Lisa McLean would be difficult because the thumb area, which I was districted in, has been very red and it was voting about 65% Republican. But what I, I think the... Democratic Party is also at fault for that because we have not invested in getting to these areas that we think just we can't win because you know it's a certain way it's a rural community or it's they have a you know Republican voting history etc. Well, how much are we there? Okay, yes, it's going to take time. It's going to take resources. And I know when you're running a campaign, you're always short on time and resources. But if we don't go there, then we're definitely not winning their votes. Uh, and so the fact that I, I looked at the, the history of the candidates that have tried to run on behalf of the Democratic Party in this area, and they just had very little support. So that really angered me because how can we talk about really changing the dynamic of where our country is if we're abandoning the people that have abandoned the party for very legitimate reasons, I believe. We have to go, we have to listen to that. We have to understand why the Democratic Party that has historically been the party of the working class is not seen as that anymore. And now we see really the working class more voting Republican. There is a, a, a reason for that. We haven't been listening. And I, I pledged to do that work, even though I knew it was going to be difficult and an uphill climb and maybe I would be rejected in a lot of areas. It didn't matter. We have to go with the message. We have to try to reach out to people, not only to tell them what kind of message we're carrying or I'm carrying, but also to listen to them. That is the work that I, I pledge to do. Now, my district has changed since Michigan has gone through the redistricting process uh, that you know all states go through every 10 years. I was drawn out of the thumb area and into what's now the new 10th congressional district, which is not Republican uh, leaning anymore. It's actually a 50-50 district. It could really go either way. I would represent a lot of Macomb County, which is historically known as the home of the Reagan Democrats. Uh, we, it's also an open seat. So there's no sitting incumbent. Uh, and therefore the district that I'm running for has changed in so many ways, but I think that um, the, 
message and the way I pledge to campaign still has to be the same. Uh, we have to still go to these areas that are not uh, voting or are not hearing our message and that think that we are not hearing them. I want really every voter to know that they have a, an ear and a home in this campaign that seeks to be uh, broad and, and representative. And that doesn't mean that we'll, oh, they'll always agree with me or I'll always agree with them, but I am running to represent them. And I believe that representatives being a member of Congress is not a position of power in any way. It is a position of service. And I, I'm running to represent the people that live in this district. And in order to represent them, I have to know them. I have to listen to them. Uh, so it is the new 10th. The district, uh, the thumb is not in my district anymore. I you know, I, a, a good campaign still needs to be run there. And I am really open to, to helping and supporting any, you know, a candidate that wants to run on a message and a platform that is about supporting uh, working families, uplifting the poor and making our government and our economy work for all people, not how it has been working for the wealthy few. And I was going to say, uh, I know that one of your big priorities is, um, I believe on the website, uh, you say that one of the big priorities is accessible and accountable leadership. Definitely. Uh, I think one of the things that needs to happen and that we need to make a big push on is getting big money out of politics. Campaign finance reform, uh, I don't know if many people realize just how important that is because when you're running uh, as a candidate, I see now just daily how many people are telling me how much I just have to be on the phone asking people for money. And these people are not necessarily the people that are going to vote for me, It's but it's what you need to run a campaign. And so I am pledging, I have pledged, and I stick to it not to take a dime of corporate PAC money or money from these big interests that then end up a lot of candidates do take that money because it's expensive to run a campaign and then they become beholden to them when they're in congress and therefore when we look at what legislation is put forth and how members of congress are voting what priorities are it's the priorities of the you know, the, the corporations and the other special interests that are writing these big checks and that has to stop because we are not members of congress are not representing these big corporations they are representing the people that voted for them and that put them in office and so that start this representative and accountable leadership starts with campaign finance reform and making sure that we are taking this big money out of politics that it's not only it will help with accountability but that will also help make sure that we really are talking about a democracy because when it is these you know corporations with the writing the big checks that are controlling the agenda then how much really are we a democracy where we're beholden to the people that vote us into office so i want to end on a, a two-pronged sort of question and then i i promise to let you go because i know we're uh, running short on time so i want you to be able to address um people that may try to write your candidacy off as, as uh, oh, she's a, a Palestinian activist. She's one issue, which you're, you're definitely not one issue. And I think you've uh, shown that. And I want you to address people that have, have tried to maybe write off the campaign as that. And I also, at the same time, want you, if you could, to talk about the importance of, you know, in my view, I, I think we need more visibility uh, for Palestinian Americans, especially in positions of leadership. I mean, uh, I told someone I was having you on recently, and they didn't know much about Palestinians. And um, they, they said to me, oh, is, is, is she 
um, she must be Muslim. And I said, well, I think her family actually grew up um, Palestinian Christian. And they didn't even know that Palestinian Christians were a thing. I, I think there's a lot of just ignorance about Palestinians and also about Arabs. And I think we need more visibility for Arab Americans and, and Palestinian Americans. Uh, so could you address those two uh, sort of things uh, briefly here? Sure. So to start with your first question, and I thank you for that. I think it probably would be easy to try to pigeonhole me as being a one issue candidate, but it's absolutely not true. If it's a one issue thing, the issue would be human rights for all people everywhere. As I mentioned earlier, I accepted a job shortly after college to work for a U.S. organization in Israel, Palestine. And what I saw before me just moved me into action and, yes, shaped the, the next few years of my life in terms of advocacy in order to stop the horrors that were happening, not happening to Palestinian men, women, children, families, but also happening with the complicity of the United States government and the US taxpayer, because it is our taxpayer dollars that are going to underwrite this. The United States gives Israel $3.8 billion a year and more this past year, it has been more in military funding. And there is no, um, there's no criteria that they have to ad adhere to. There are no restrictions on US, uh, in the, our own law, we have laws that say the U.S. military funding cannot be used to commit human rights abuses, cannot be used to commit uh, you know, acts of aggression. And Israel is using them for these things, but we don't hold Israel accountable. So there are these kinds of things aren't attached to our funding to Israel, and that, that needs to change. You're right. I think that most uh, Americans don't know a lot about what's happening there, don't know a lot about us, and I'll get to that more in a second. So it was me wanting to take action to stop human rights abuses. And now that I'm living back here also in, in Michigan, it's the same thing. I see human rights abuses around me every day. It's not the same as what was happening in Palestine for sure. But when you have to decide between heating your home and putting food on the table, you are not free. When you have to ration your medicine, you are being denied. When you have to send your kid to school in the morning and you don't know if they're going to come home after school because of the timidity and, and the corruption of some lawmakers that won't pass safe gun safety laws, you are not free. We have people's rights being denied here every single day. And I am 100% committed to fighting for those rights. I think people really, everywhere around the world want basic things, want to be able to live a life with dignity, have a job that pays a living wage so they can support a family. Going back to what my parents came to this country for, freedom and opportunity. And that is being denied. It's being denied in Palestine. It's being denied in Ukraine. It's being denied in the Western Sahara. It's being denied right here at home where I am in Oakland and Macomb counties. So my one issue is people and people's rights. Now, uh, back to your other question or moving on to your other question about knowing more about Palestinians and, and Arab Americans. We have such a rich uh, culture that I love to share with people, but I say that also in, in bringing it back to, I'm, I'm very proud to be an Arab American and Palestinian American, but also emphasizing that American part. We, I believe I'm very much 
and the American story. And that's part of what makes America beautiful is that people have come from all over the world and not to be a melting pot, but to be this, I don't know if I'm going to say maybe like a uh, a soup where we're all keeping the, the different and the shapes and flavors of the places that we come from. And, and that's what part of what I believe makes this country great. But in terms of Arab Americans specifically, we've contributed so much to the the culture, the social and economic vibrancy of this country, but have not always um, been looked at in with regard to a respected uh, in relation to what we contribute to this country because there is just this misconception and this propaganda about who Palestinians and who Arab Americans are. It's always tied to um, tropes and other really vulgarities that has really done a disservice, I think, not only to us as Palestinian Arab Americans, but also to the people of this country that I think would benefit a lot from learning more about us away from, you know, that we're terrorists or we're, you know, somewhat, uh, I don't even want to repeat some of the other things that we've had to grow up and that we've, we've had to deal with. Um, there are the, in the United States, actually most Arab Americans in the United States are, are Christian. We come from over uh, 22 different countries in the Arab world. Some of the, the foods that Americans now love from shawarma and falafel to hummus come from the Arab world. These are things that we love to, to share with people. And then when you look at the, the contributions to the economic and other aspects of to society, it's a, a beautiful thing. And having representation in different um sectors in different areas of, of American life uh, where, where people are less afraid to bring that out because of the historical stereotypes against our communities, I think would be a good thing. And, and one of the things that I made sure that uh, I made clear is that I'm not going to hide anything about my past, what I've done, or who I am in running for politics. I know a lot of people and a lot of campaigns try to shape the politician. I'm not, I guess, officially on paper, I'm listed as a politician, but I think a, a politician is, or what I'm running for, is to be a representative of the very diverse and beautiful community that I come from. And, and to do that proudly is uh, what I'm intent on doing. So I hope that you know your listeners will look more into my campaign, hawaiidaforcongress.com, reach out to us. We are you know, looking to, again, really make this a campaign about what politics um, should be. And also just uh, uh, real briefly here, I, I just wanted to say, uh, I, I think you're uh, relatable to a lot of people because you're not only uh, running for Congress, you're also juggling being a mother and, and many other things. So I, I think people can really relate to you. You've been working since you were uh, very young. So I think people can see, hey, Hueda is like us and she'll represent us. Yes, 100%. You have a, a home in this campaign and a fighter for you uh, in, in Washington and wherever you need. So it's, I've, I've fought for people's rights for really most of my life. And it's what uh, my life is committed to because I think it's the right thing, but also because I think what all of us want it, inherently to be able to do, to leave this country um, and a world in a better place than we found it for my kids, for your kids. 
Uh, so please do. It's wonderful. Actually, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to your listeners. I want to invite your listeners to please get in touch with um, our campaign. I need and want you a part of it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Huweda Araf, currently running for Congress in Michigan's 10th District. Next up, Dr. Hoya Alimagam on the Iran deal talks in light of the Ukraine crisis. You'll also be hearing a little bit of history about why there is so much tension between the U.S. and Iran over the decades. With that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Dr. Poya Alamagam. Welcome back to Parallax Views, guest that I'm very happy to have back on, uh, Poya Alamigam. And I, I hope I pronounced that right. I always worry about mispronouncing my guest's names. Yeah, it's uh, close enough. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I mean, I, you can, as you can tell, I'm wearing a sweater because I'm still in, it's spring, but it's still cold out here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> so I wanted to have you back on the show because, uh, you know, since the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin, I think a lot of people have unfortunately not been talking enough about the Iran deal and getting back into that deal. And I think there's a lot of voices now that are trying to put the kibosh on that deal. I, I see a lot of op-eds coming out saying, oh, if we get back into the deal, that will actually weaken the U.S. And uh, a lot of people are really jumping on this moment uh, to hurt the uh, possibility of getting back into the Iran deal. Where do you th see things as standing right now when it comes to the JCPOA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? Well, yeah, first of all, let, let's assess who these people are that are saying it'll weaken the United States. So the, their main source of, of their frame of reference is that um, so many of the ally, our allies in the region are opposed to reviving the nuclear deal. And they were opposed there from day one. Uh, namely, the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, UAE, uh, and Israel, right? So anyone who's supportive of those three countries or as part of those countries' lobby groups in D.C. always say that the nuclear deal was a bad deal. And, and, and really the idea is that um, they want to use American power to strangle Iran. That's really the issue, right? Otherwise, our allies, right, our, our allies who also have nuclear weapons themselves, right? I mean, Israel does have them, but the French, the British, the Germans, the, uh, you know, everybody who's part of that agreement that was backed by UN Security Council resolution, they think the JCPOA was working, right? And they, they think it's a good, good thing. And it absolutely is. It's the world's most important nuclear arms control treaty ever signed, right? It basically peacefully ensures that a lawful civilian nuclear program, and I want to say that again, Iran's nuclear program is lawful. Every country that signs the non-proliferation treaty is entitled to a legal nuclear program, right? This JCPOA ensures that Iran's lawful nuclear program remains civilian, right? So it's very much a good thing. The issue really is that, again, they want to use American economic and if possible military power to basically 
uh, strangle another country in the region. Now, the question is, you know, why? What is the beef that these countries have with Iran? That's a whole different issue. But that, that was the whole point of the JCPOA. The JCPOA uh, that President Obama signed was really designed to rob a lot of these uh, countries and their lobby groups in D.C. from a, an excuse for another Middle Eastern war, right? And ever since Donald Trump scuttled that nuclear deal, which was holding, which was a verify, even the US intelligence agencies verified that Iran was abiding by the nuclear agreement to the very T. I, I think the UN as well. Everybody, right? There's not a single agency, uh, and most importantly, the International Agency for Atomic Agency, uh, 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 the International Atomic Energy a uh, Agency, the IAEA, that is the main body, and that verified that it was that Iran was abiding by it to the T. Donald Trump scuttled it very unilaterally in 2018. And, and the question then is why? Did he actually think, because his whole premise was this is a flawed deal, I could get a better one, right? He never even tried to negotiate. Should I should tell you that the, the, the objective never was to obtain a better, stronger, or longer nuclear agreement. Right. The whole premise was that Trump was lobbied to withdraw from the nuclear deal. And he did never tried to get a better one. And why was he lobbied to, to scuttle the deal? Mainly because those people that want to use American power to strangle Iran wanted to, to wanted to be able to use a nuclear issue again. Now that the United States has scuttled the agreement, they would now be able to use it as an excuse to uh, intensify attentions with Iran, which is essentially what happened. Do you think it's just about um, some of those other states, uh, some of the Gulf states and, and, and states like Israel? Or do you think there's also this issue of, I, I think there's a lot of just, you know, I, I would say bigotry um, or, or hatred towards Iran or bad feelings over the past, you know, few decades. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, people within the national security establishment here um, haven't forgotten about things like the the hostage crisis. And I think Iran yeah. hasn't forgotten about uh, Operation Ajax and what happened with the coup in 1953. Uh, do you think a, a lot of players are just not thinking rationally about these things, especially in the U.S.? So, you know, it's a, it's a really good point, right? So I would say I would say one of two things, right? Well, I would say two things. One is that the elder statesmen, of course, still see Iran through the prism of 1979, 1980, the, the seizure of the US embassy, right? And, and the elder statesmen in Iran kind of still see uh, the US in, in the prism of history as well too, not just with the coup, because no one, no one really in, in, in government maybe was alive at the time of the coup, the coup was 1953. But they still see kind of the United States in the prism of the, of the US support for Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war of the 80s when Saddam was using chemical weapons against Iranians with U.S. backing. They still see the United States through the prism of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and you know the setup of the whole military infrastructure in the whole in the region as a whole. So they still see the prism, the U.S. in that prism. But the issue isn't that this this negative light is the guiding light for policy, right? So you know these negative stereotypes and these images that we have in our minds make terrible policies more acceptable, but they're not the main incentive for those policies, right? So, 
you know, I would say that anyone who has an incentive, it's not just the foreign governments, right? It's the foreign governments, their lobbies in DC, and also special interests in DC, right? Anyone that thinks a US war with Iran or the US strangling Iran is a good thing, they're behind, you know, scuttling the JCPOA. So, you know, there are, you know, no offense to anybody, there are some evangelical groups that see Iran literally as the Antichrist, right? So they think, you know, anything that bad happens to Iran, especially at the hands of the righteous United States, is a good thing, right? Anyone who supports Israel uh, will support uh, basically an aggressive U.S. posture towards Iran, mainly because Iran is one of the only countries in the region that supports uh, policies that, you know, push back against Israeli colonization of the West Bank. Um, the weapons industry, right? So the weapons industry, they lobby, they, they very much like an aggressive posture towards Iran because it increases the chance of war and war increases the chances of their weapons being used and, and more profits, right? So there's a lot of interest in Scotland deal. And then, you know, when you see these op-eds coming out um, against the JCPOA or against the United States returning to the, to the JCPOA, it's really, who are these people writing these op-eds? Most of them belong to these think tanks in DC and these think tanks in DC are, are funded by some of these interests that we just mentioned. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned the whole evangelical element because uh, in a recent trip uh, to uh, meet with Israeli leaders, uh, Mike Pence, uh, the former vice president under Trump, uh, actually basically said, you know, if we do come to a new Iran deal, we're just going to, you know, rip it up again once the uh, Republicans come into power. Uh, yeah. And I was just really shocked by that. I mean, I, I don't know uh, how Iran is supposed to look at uh, statements like that or what Trump did and, and possibly be able to trust the U.S. with a new well, deal, which is very that's sad. One the, that's one of the many reasons why this renegotiation of a U.S. return to the JCPOA has, has been taking so long. Because the Iranians want a guarantee that the U.S. will not subvert their agreement again. And the, the U.S. government can't, like, no matter what it says, like, the Congress approved the JCPOA, the presidency approved it, even though the Republican Party invited a head of state, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, to come to Congress and speak against the JCPOA, even though Congress still voted for it, the administration voted for it, the main powers in the world voted for it. It was supported by most countries on this planet and the United Nations Security Council resolution. It still did not hold because one country subverted it. And that's really the issue, right? The United States kind of just does what it wants, right? Sometimes it uses international law when it agrees with it, it abides by it and enforces it. Like right now it's all about, it's very concerned about Ukrainian sovereignty and everyone should be concerned about Ukrainian sovereignty. But now the United States is concerned about, oh, Powerful countries should uh, respect other countries' sovereignty. But when it comes to the United States and other countries that it, it targets, like Iraq, sovereignty is a non-issue. I was just going to add to that. I mean, another point one could bring up in that regard is, uh, you know, when Morocco annexed uh, Western Sahara, uh, Trump uh, officially recognized that. Uh, same with uh, the, the Golan Heights in Israel, when Israel annexed uh, the Golan Heights. And Biden hasn't done anything to uh, reverse those decisions. So it, it seems like we pick and choose uh, whose sovereignty we want to recognize. Yeah. Um, I mean, Biden's the same, uh, he's the same person who voted for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, 
right? So, you know, history matters, precedent matters, your voting record matters. And, and again, like this is just, what we're seeing happening in Ukraine is, is horrible, but it's also instructive in the way our foreign policy and our media works. Like you really kind of see that the media in, in certain regards, doesn't matter if it's centrist, left or right, when the mainstream media, when it comes to foreign policy, they close ranks behind the government, right? So you're hearing these horrible stories of kids dying, hospitals being bombed, you're, you're interviewing Ukrainians and all this should happen, mind you. But when it comes to people who are on the receiving end of our weapons, whether some, whether we're the ones pulling the trigger or we're giving them to allies who are then pulling the trigger and killing people, it, the media focus is very different, right? And so we, we, this moment is very instructive from a historian's perspective. In that regard, what do you make of, you know, I've seen some people in media interviews saying things recently like, uh, what is happening in Ukraine? This is a, a European country. This is not like Afghanistan or Iraq. And to me, I, I have to raise an eyebrow and think, what what do they mean by that? It just seems very, it just seems like racism to me. 100%, right? So there's this, um, I mean, that's the obvious thing, right? The, the media is giving more attention to uh, Ukraine because it's white on white violence, right? And that's the thing that's horrifying about it, right? But when it happens in other parts of the world, it's perfectly normalized, right? But it's not normalized, right? It's just only normalized in the mindsets of these people because this, the general assumption is that the West, so Western Europe or Europe as a whole, United States, Canada, Australia, all these countries are peaceful and normal and, 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 and stable and everywhere else is really violent where we, we forget that you know, 60 or 70 years ago or 80 years ago, World War II happened in Europe. The Holocaust happened in Europe. The European countries that went and took over much of the developing world and committed mass murder, literally, were Europeans who were committing that mass murder. So we got to get out of this mindset that for some reason, everywhere else is savage and barbaric and, and that's perfectly normal when killing happens there, especially when we're doing the killing, right? Americans doing the killing. But when, when it happens between, when it's white on white violence, uh, that's when it becomes horrifying and abnormal, right? And then people say, well, why do you insert race into the conversation? It's like, you guys, we're not pointing, we're not inserting race in the conversation. Race is part of the conversation. We're just not using the terms and we're just trying to like underscore the racial tones that are embedded and internalized in these discourses. We're just pointing them out. We're not inserting race into the conversation. Everyone's always like sensitive about like, why are we talking about race? It's because it's such a big part of how we cover the news, how we cover the subjects of these foreign endeavors and how, our, how it is used to justify our foreign interventions. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I you know, I, I think it's unavoidable because when we're talking about Ukraine, it's, oh, this is different because this is a Western country. I mean, the, the Western sort of, supremacism of it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how anyone in, in countries uh, in Africa uh, or, you know, in the Middle East uh, can look at that and, and not see a double standard there. And it doesn't actually help uh, our causes. I mean, if we want to uh, say that we're for international law, we have to abide by the rules we claim to adhere to. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Um, and Assad said it really well, right? It would be great, we would, we would, when, when US government officials want to talk about sovereignty, it would be great, it would make sense, it would be credible if only they didn't 
undermine it at every turn when it came to themselves, right? Um, and, you know, I'd like to add too, right? When we talk about Ukraine and how it's it's so mind-blowing that this violence is being visited upon a Western or European country and how unusual it is. Let me just say, there's no conflict in the Middle East where the United States is not involved, right? So either the United States is directly involved or its weapons are directly involved. So, you know, when, you, when you're giving weapons to a country like Saudi Arabia that is bombing relentlessly the poorest country in the region, Yemen, the United States is still involved in that conflict because it wouldn't be happening. These countries are junior partners. They don't do anything without boss man telling them it's okay. And we know this, not as historians, but we know this because Trump himself said this. So in 2018, Trump basically said, he's like, these countries in the region, he's talking about the Persian Gulf region, Qatar, Emirat, um, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, right? Where they don't really have traditional militaries, right? They don't have traditional militaries because traditional militaries can overthrow governments, right? So a lot of these countries in the region, they don't have traditional militaries, right? So if they don't have traditional militaries, they have like air force jets and air force. If they don't have traditional militaries, then they could be susceptible to being attacked by bigger countries in the region, right? So there's one country that guarantees the security of these autocrats, and that's the United States. So Trump basically said, is like, we provide a security guarantee to these countries, and that costs us money. Therefore, these countries should start to pay up. If they don't pay up, and we withdraw our security guarantee, and we withdraw our forces that dot this whole region, these governments wouldn't last a week, right? So that's a very telling, very telling statement, right? We support and sustain dictatorships. We arm them. And when they're, when they're in attacking another country, we're part of that conflict now. So when Saudi Arabia is bombing Yemen, we're party to that conflict. So when we want to talk about civilized and peaceful and all that, we should look in the mirror because there's no conflict in the region that the United States is not involved or its, its weapons are not involved. And right now, I think it's important to talk about that because, uh, you know, I, I had a professor uh, on recently who specializes in um, Cuba and its history and its history of relations with the U.S. Uh, and he was saying, you know, Cuba's in a difficult spot now because it may not agree uh, with what Putin is doing, but also it's not been on good terms with the U.S. Uh, for a long time. And it knows it's not going to get anything from the U.S. So in some ways, I, I think if we want to, you know, reach out to other countries uh, and sort of get them on our side on things, I, I don't think uh, things like sanctions against Cuba and Iran have really helped us. Um, does that make sense where I'm going with that? I, I think a lot yeah, of our so, actions so, so, drive, so, hmm? go on. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of these countries are seen from the perspective of the, of the United States as being highly ideological, right? So. Cuba is a communist country. Russia is a former communist country. Therefore, it kind of sees Russia as its Patreon uh, and, and it kind of supports its policies. Uh, Iran is an Islamist government, is you know, inherently anti-American, anti-progress and modern, whatever the discourse is, and it, it will never be able to work with the United States, right? Uh, these, are, these are like the way we look at a lot of these countries, right? But pragmatism often supersedes ideology. So, so Cuba right now uh, is, is essentially quiet um, to a Russian invasion of Ukraine, not because Russia is a communist country, because it isn't, but because it really it's embargoed by the United States since the 60s. 
and has like doesn't have very many allies and it just needs the Russians, right? And 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 the flip side to that is Iran, right? So Iran is this like it, it's an Islamic republic. Um, it has fiercely opposed the United States, not because it doesn't like American culture or anything like that, but it doesn't like US policies in the region, right? The dominant power in the region is the United States, even though the United States is not native to the Middle East. But it has, despite its ideology of resistance to the United States, it has compromised and in sometimes completely subverted its ideology for its national interests. Like, like in the Iran-Iraq war, where the United Iran was fiercely opposed to the U.S. presence in the region, but then was secretly buying U.S. weapons from Israel of all countries uh, during the Iran-Iraq war to be able to prosecute its war with Iraq in the '80s. And the idea was that it was dependent on U.S. parts because the U.S. military, uh, the Iranian military before the Iranian Revolution of '78 '79, was American, so it needed American spare parts to power its equipment. But that's pragmatism superseding ideology, because if it was ideology guiding policy, it would say, no, we're not going to buy those weapons because they're American. We don't want to buy, we don't want to give business to the United States. We want to want to resist it. But then pragmatism nece necessitated the purchase of those weapons and those spare parts to be able to fight that war with Iraq. Yeah, it's 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 all very strange to me when people say to me, well, it, you know, Iran's going to work economically with the uh, China and and I will just think to myself, well, we've sort of cut them off through sanctions. Who do you want them to work with? What are, what is a country yeah. supposed to do for its national survival? It's all it, it, again. It brings us back to our conversation of sovereignty, right? Is Iran a sovereign country? If it is, then what's it your business? What country it works with? Not you, as in like what's it the business of the United States if Iran works with China? But also, you didn't give it much. You didn't give it much. Very many options, right? Because. The whole point of the JCPOA from the Iranian perspective was, again, pragmatism superseding ideology. Iran essentially surrendered its nuclear program, right? The most intrusive inspections regime ever imposed on a country, Iran accepted. And the point was to be able to come out of the cold, remove America from its war footing with Iran, because America had been on a war footing with Iran since 9-11. The idea was to re remove America from a war footing from Iran and then to build better business relations with Western countries. So one of the first things Iran did when it signed the JCPOA was it signed a multi-billion dollar agreement with US airline manufacturers to buy civilian airliners, right? So, and then once the JCPOA was scuttled, all of those contracts were scrapped. So the point really was Iran wanted to build better, better relations with economic relations with Western countries, right? And now it's really learning that it can't, there's no longevity in those relations because you can't trust them. You can't trust the, the United States in particular. So now it's, it's going towards, it's, it's looking eastward towards China for business and political and security improvement in their, in their relations. So part of that's Iran is a sovereign country, has every right to do that. So the United States could not like it, but you want to respect sovereignty in Ukraine. You got to you got to you got to respect it in Iran when it comes to these decisions. But also, the United States pushed Iran east towards China, just like you said. So, uh, before we start closing out, I want to come back to uh, the Iran Iraq War. Uh, it, it was interesting. I saw that uh, Professor Michael McFall, um, who I'm not a big fan of, the the U.S. the former U.S. ambassador, uh, I believe, to yeah. Russia recently wrote about, oh, the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq was a mistake, but it's wrong to compare this to uh, Ukraine. And uh, then he, he mentioned something, and I thought his wording was interesting, and I know you did as well. 
Uh, he talked yeah. about how Saddam invaded Kuwait, but he, the, then he said Saddam fought Iran. Yeah. Um, what I mean, he invaded Iran and also used chemical weapons on Iranians. So I thought that was very yeah. interesting that he said fought Iran rather than uh, invade it and used chemical weapons. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so discourse is really important, right? Our, the words we use, especially the way politicians frame things, the West, especially the way the media frames things, it kind of, there's meaning to our words, right? It, it, it subtly kind of underscores who the victim is, who the aggressor is, who's good and who's bad, right? Iraq invaded, he used the word invaded Kuwait. So it's really obvious who the aggressor is. The aggressor is Kuwait, the victim, I'm sorry, the aggressor is Iraq, the victim is Kuwait. But then he said in the same tweet, Iraq fought Iran, right? So there's no, it's not obvious who, who's the victim, who's the aggressor, who's good, who's bad, right? Iraq, Iraq fought Iran. The truth is Iraq invaded Iran with the backing of most powers in the world, the Soviet Union, the British, the French, West Germany, the United States, most of the Arab states, minus Syria, to a lesser extent, minus Libya, but most Arab states, to the tunes of billions of tech and, and money and everything. And then use chemical weapons on Iranians, right? And Iran, the Iranians had chemical weapons and did not reciprocate. The leader of the state said using chemical weapons is forbidden in Islam and straight up said we can't do it. When the, when the Iranians went, this is when international law only benefits the powerful. When the Iranians went to the United Nations to get a Security Council resolution passed condemning Iraq's use of chemical weapons, the United Nations, the United States made sure that that Security Council resolution wasn't even tabled because it didn't want to veto it. A vetoing that would have been really embarrassing. So it just made sure it didn't even get tabled so it didn't have to get vetoed, right? And so when someone like, uh, Ambassador McFaul, Professor McFaul says, fought Iran, he's using very loaded language because to that class of people, that, that generation or that political ideology, in no way can we think of Iran as a victim, right? We can't think of it as a victim of US support for Iraq. We can't think of it as a victim of Iraqi use of chemical weapons. We can't think of it as a victim of US sanctions. We can't think of it as a victim of US sanctions, especially during COVID, because Iran was the epicenter of the COVID, of the COVID outbreak in the Middle East. And not only the typically states, enemy states during times of natural disasters, they suspend hostilities, offer each other aid. Trump not only did not offer to relieve Iran of the sanctions, but he intensified the sanctions during the COVID outbreak, right? He saw it as an opportunity to hit Iran when it was down. But that discourse is completely gone. Uh, that power dynamic is completely gone. No one wants to talk about Iran as a victim of US policy, as a victim of chemical weapons, as a victim of war, invasion. You can't, it's just, it, they, they can't wrap their heads around it. It's just the word, they see the world in black and white. So in my classes or whenever, whenever I get a chance on Twitter or social media, I try to get people to understand that by accepting that kind of discourse, they've already internalized a certain bias. So I try to get them to think about the terms that they use and to really try to unpack. And if I may make one last point, when it comes to the Iran-Iraq war, you made me think of General uh, Qasem Soleimani. He was the Iranian general uh, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, Guards Force External Operations Unit, the Quds Force, that Trump assassinated in January 3rd of 2020. General Soleimani's biggest crime, allegedly, was that he, during the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and onwards, 
he was giving weapons to Iraqi insurgents to kill American soldiers. He may very well have been doing that. But the idea was that, and we know this now because all the documents have been leaked. The Iranians knew this then. When, it, when the United States invaded Afghanistan after 9-11 in 2001, and then invaded Iraq in 2003, the ease with which it took over the country, right, initially convinced the Americans that they could go into Iran and Syria next. You know, they hadn't been bogged down yet in Iraq or Afghanistan. So the allegation was that Soleimani gave weapons know-how to Iraqis, especially with improvised explosive devices, IEDs, those roadside bombs that killed so many soldiers. And it may very well be true because the idea was that Soleimani and the Iranians wanted to get, had an incentive to bog down U.S. forces in Iraq so that it wouldn't go next door into Iraq. And that was the main beef the military brass had with, with Qasem Soleimani. He was accused of having American blood on his hands. We're doing the exact same thing right now, very openly in Ukraine. We're providing the Ukrainians with Stinger missiles, Javelin missiles to destroy tanks and jets. And, and, and okay, fine, the, the Putin and the Russians are the aggressors, very obviously they're the aggressors, they've invaded the country. But for the Iranians and the Iraqis, the US was also the aggressor when invaded Iraq and Iran was next. The, Putin's not threatening to invade Iraq next. Iraq, I'm sorry, Putin's not threatening to invade the US next. The US does not border Ukraine. Iraq bordered Iran, Afghanistan bordered Iran, and the US was threatening Iran next. Right. So think about think about the kind of like how normal it is for us on the media to be thinking about providing Ukrainians with weapons to kill Russians. But when Austin Soleimani was alleged to have given weapons know-how to Iraqis to kill American soldiers, who were then geared to go into Iran next anyways, potentially, uh, he was public enemy number one. And that's that double standard that we really got to unpack when we think about the language and discourse that we use. Real quick, too, uh, with regards to uh, U.S. support for Saddam Hussein during um, uh, Saddam's uh, use of chemical weapons against Iranians, I, I think U.S. officials, I don't know where they stand now or what they say, but they, they've always uh, denied that they were acquiescing to Iraqi chemical attacks. But uh, my understanding, based on things I've read in places like foreign policy, is that uh, you know we have declassified CIA documents, uh, we have uh, retired military officials like Air Force Colonel uh, Rick Francona, uh, who have said, no, we, we already knew that they intended to use nerve gas, the, the Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. So to me, um, U.S. Uh, support for Iraq during that conflict is uh, very much, we know <laughs> that the U.S. was uh, part of that. Um, could you speak to that a little bit more? I would say the United States would love to have possible deniability, that's his M.O., but you can't, you just simply can't. The United States not only knew about it, but after the fact, prevented a UN Security Council resolution against the use of chemical weapons on Iranians. And then even before the UN whole debate, the United States gave Iraq satellite intelligence on Iranian troop movements so that Saddam would know where to use those chemical weapons. So it's very much part of the chemical weapons use. 100%. Like, it has no deniability. It would love to have it, right? And that's the thing, right? It, it always has plausible deniability. In this case, it really doesn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't have it before the fact. It doesn't have it after the fact. So then, with regards to uh, the JCPOA and where it stands now, I, I saw recently that uh, Senator Rand Paul is sort of the sole figure within the Republican Party saying, you know, 
leaving the JCPOA was a big mistake and it was uh, it was wrong to do that. Um, a lot of other Republicans are going in the exact opposite direction of him. Of course. Uh, do, what do you see as uh, the future for the JCPOA? Because, you know, I'm, I'm at a moment where I'm agreeing with someone like Rand Paul, who I'm not uh, necessarily yeah. politically aligned with on most things. But I feel like we need sure. to get back into this deal. So the deal is actually like we're in the final stretch of the renegotiation for the U.S. to re-enter it. Um, there's been there's been two holdups. One is that um, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russians have now at the very last minute of these negotiations with with the Iranians and the United States has threw a wrench in the deal, saying that um, now that we as Russians are being sanctioned. We want to make sure that when the JCPOA is revived and everyone's doing business with Iran, we want to make sure that these sanctions imposed on us does not prevent us to do business with the Iranians. So what's that about, right? So the Russians are now linking the JCPOA negotiations with its invasion of Ukraine. So that was the last minute thing that, that postponed um, a revival of the agreement. But one of the other issues was that Trump reimposed a lot of these sanctions that were removed because of the JCPOA, right? And then he tacked on a lot of additional ones, right? Like designating the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, as part of uh, 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 the FTO, the State, the State Department's um, list of foreign terrorist organizations, right? And if you look at the big proponents of the people who lobbied for Trump to do this, their whole thing was, now that Trump has scuttled the JCPOA, we want to make sure that we install roadblocks so that a future president won't be able to return to the JCPOA, right? So now they've, they've, they've basically not only scuttled the JCPOA, but put all these barriers in the way to further strain Iran-US relations so that it would be hard to return to the nuclear deal, right? And the case in point would be, Biden, if he wants to return to the deal, has to not only remove all of Trump's sanctions, but then he has to spend the political capital and outright say that the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, this, this military organization, this elite military organization of the Iranians that's totally demonized in the United States for various reasons, um, is not a terrorist organization. That, that's going to cost some political capital. And that was the whole point of Trump listing the Islamic Revolutionary Guards on the FTO list was so that a future president, Biden, wouldn't be able to ex expend the political capital necessary to revive the deal. That one issue is one of the main stumbling blocks on the revival of the nuclear deal. Last thing too, since you mentioned Russia, I've, I've also seen people who are against uh, the JCPOA say, why are we trying to make a deal with, uh, they'll, they'll just call Iran uh, a Russian client state. How do you respond to people that make that accusation? Yeah, I mean, what's a client state, right? Iran, uh, you look at the whole region in the Middle East, most of them have, not most of them, many of them have U.S. military bases. Do we call them client states, right? Iran does not have a Russian military base. So I don't know how it would be. I mean, that's a really good example of how Iran is not a client state to the Russians, right? Um, they see eye to eye in certain conflicts, like in Syria, they were all on the same side. And then in certain other conflicts, they're not on the same side. Right. So uh, I was I wouldn't call Iran a client state of, of anybody. And, and that's really the issue. Right. The, the United States only has client states in the region and except for one country, Iran. Right. And so 
That's one of the real issues between the United States and Iran is that there's one country that won't come under the American thumb and not only refuses to come under the American thumb, is pushing back at the other American thumbs in the region. So I, I wouldn't say Iran is a client state to anybody. And that, that's really the issue is that it's not a client state, especially to the United States. And I would just add to that. I, I'm assuming, you know, I, I'm not in Iran, but I'm, a, I'm assuming and I can't speak for like the leadership of Iran, but I'm assuming there are a lot of Iranians that look at what is uh, happening in Ukraine and, and have a lot of sympathy uh, for Ukrainians, because as you said, I mean, there is a memory of, of Saddam invading Iran. I mean, when I, when I saw that um, the former president Ahmadinejad had, had said, uh, you know, please stop this war, Putin. I mean, I think he called it a, a satanic war in a tweet. Everyone was surprised. I mean, I don't think it's that surprising. I think Iranians uh, probably have a lot of sympathy uh, for Ukrainians, uh, given that they've dealt with uh, similar situations. I'll do you one better. The first country on this planet that publicly came out against the nine against 9-11 and in solidarity with American people was Iran. Right? The Iranian president at the time, Mohammad Khatami, came out against the 9-11. And that's a big deal, right? Because it's an Islamic government and it came out against terror, a terror attack that was perpetuated by Islamists themselves. So you, you never less. hear the right wingers in the U.S. mention that they always say, "Oh, why don't why don't these Islamic countries condemn uh, terrorist attacks?" But Iran did condemn 9/11. Muslims, Islamic countries, Islamic governments—they do. It's just no one wants to listen to it, right? But you know, again, like they, they always put the onus on on these countries, and they never the, like the right wing or anybody really in the United States, they don't want to talk about the root causes of these conflicts, right? Okay, so we condemn 9-11 now, but what about the reasons for why it happened? And the mainstream media and the government explanation was 9-11 happened because they hate us for our freedoms and our culture. That's just completely baloney, complete nonsense. Not to justify it, but we got to have those deeper conversations. We still have to have the deeper conversation as to why 9-11 happened, because our policies haven't changed. So those, the, the uh, root causes for 9-11 are persisting. So we may, you know, with that, that whole bipolarity of the world and the polarization and the and, uh, uh, animosities, they're also brewing. Well, I want to thank you again, Poya Alamigam, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? I know you have Twitter and also uh, Anything you want to say in closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for these uh, 40 or so minutes? Well, I would say, well, if they want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at IPOUYA, um, at IPOUYA, I-P-O-U-Y-A. Um, and I publish a book with Cambridge University Press on, um, on uh, social movements in Iran called Contesting the Iranian Revolution, the Green Uprisings. If you want to learn more about Iran, revolutionary movements, or general history of modern Middle East or modern Iran, that's a good place to start. Uh, I think the takeaway I would like for your listeners and viewers to have is that, um, you know, be mindful of the rhetoric that's being used, unpack and question those discourses and phrasing and terminologies, and remember this moment in history, the way our media is humanizing Ukrainians, which is a beautiful thing, and remember when they don't humanize other victims of other conflicts, especially when the perpetrators of violence are ourselves are now allies. Remember this moment, it's very instructive. This, the way we're humanizing Ukrainians should be the way we humanize every victim of either US aggression or US allied aggression. So remember these moments, unpack the uh, phrases, 
and remember the double standards. They're, they're piling up. Thank you again, Poya Alamigam, for coming on Parallax Views. It's a pleasure. Thank you as well. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Dr. Poya Alamagam and Huweda Araf. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider making a monthly contribution to Parallax Views at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can make a one, five, ten, fifteen, or hundred dollar donation each month, and it will help to keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.